it usually doesn't take long for yesterday's top news to fade from the headlines. But in the months since the terrorist attack on the Charlie Hebdo magazine office in Paris, French citizens of all stripes have shown their resolve to defend their values. We want to keep our freedom of speech. We want those guys to be able to do the drawings they want and the cartoons they want because that's part of our culture. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we check in with friends from France on the challenges their country's facing. We'll also take a different look at Paris through the eyes of historian Graham Robb. He helps us get a better feel for the city by introducing us to a cast of characters whose magnificent stories are often stranger than fiction. Every great city generates countless stories, and you could just peer through one window in one building in different centuries and construct a whole history in miniature of the city. The Future of France, an adventure history of Paris, and listener travel tales are all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. There are millions of reasons why Paris is one of the world's favorite cities to visit. The cozy neighborhoods and elegant public spaces make Paris the kind of city that each of us can experience in our own ways. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Graham Robb introduces us to a Paris you probably never knew through the characters who've left their mark on this city over the centuries. And later in the hour, listeners share their latest travel adventures to Paris and beyond at 877-333-7425. But more recent events in Paris grabbed the world's attention when terrorists murdered staff at the Charlie Hebdo magazine office and a few days later at a neighborhood kosher grocery store. Do the tragic events of January change how the French view their beloved capital? And what are people in France saying about their multicultural society and what it takes to live together without being suspicious of your neighbors? Two of my tour guide friends from France join us now to delve into the issues the French are debating today. Patrick Vidal lives in Brittany in the Northwest, and Virginie Moret comes to us from Lyon in the opposite end of the country. Patrick, Virginie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Bonjour, Rick. So France has gone through quite a tumultuous period, and it's, it's not unique to France. I mean, all over the world, people are dealing with these kind of stresses. But the biggest demonstrations in the history of France, I understand, followed the massacre of Charlie Hebdo. What is it like to be in France dealing with this struggle? That was a very moving thing. I mean, those guys who, uh, who died, I mean, I, I, I grew up with them. I grew you up grew with, up with, with, this, with the stories and the... Uh, and the very sort of like Mad Magazine in America, A maybe? little bit, yeah. I'm pretty left-wing, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's a very left-wing magazine. And I've grown up through that. They're coming from the 1960s with the big events of the May 1968. They, they really broke through back in the 60s and 70s. That and was a big thing at this time. The story of Charlie Hebdo is a bit up and down. It's a bit mm-hmm. roller coaster kind of thing. It went well in the 60s and 70s at the time when a lot of people were was reading the magazine. And then he disappeared for a while, and he came back, and he disappeared but, again when bankruptcy came but back. But it so symbolizes, even though it had a relatively small circulation, very small, very symbolized small. France's passion for freedom and no censorship and, and no sacred cows. Yeah, what we call the liberté d'expression, which is not really freedom of speech, but freedom of expression, of being able to say whatever you want. And uh, the fact that it was mainly through cartoons, we have a big culture of cartoons in France. What is and the culture of cartoons we, in France? Because that is a huge thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? And cartoons, which we call bande dessinée, so animated strips, we have them for kids, we have them for adults. But uh, Cabu, who was one of the, the men who was killed on that day, actually I knew him from as a kid on TV because he was running a, a kid's show hmm. at the same time running the magazine that is you know, highly satirical. But in France, it's seen as uh, everybody can understand society through cartoons and they can adapt to a kid's level, adult's level. So in France, satire is big and cartoons are big. And this was the pinnacle of that. Absolutely. Satire cartoon magazine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they were printing something like Mm -hmm. uh, 40,000... Weekly. Weekly, something like that. So it, it was... A very small... But the, the first issue after the massacre, three million sold out immediately. Absolutely, yeah. They sold it... Yeah, 700,000 uh, on the first day, and they were going to publish over two weeks, five million copies yeah, total. So that was, wow. that was enormous, yeah. That's that was huge, big. with 65 million people in France. Yeah. So what brought so many people into the streets after that? There's been many tragedies, but how did this strike a chord with France and, 
And what's the bigger picture here? What is France struggling with? What brought people in the street, it's what we talked about. It's the freedom of speech. It's the worries of saying those guys, you can make people shut down, shut up with a weapon when the only weapon is a pen. And that's no good. So that's the first thing. That's what brought people in the street. So this was even bigger than the assimilation of Muslim minorities in France. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much it's bigger for, than that. Much more than that. Much, <sighs> much more on that aspect than definitely the assimilation. I think it's a big problem that we've got to face after uh, the aftermath of the of the event. But this is not the only one. I mean, uh, the the original reason for people in the street is saying we want to keep our freedom of speech. We want those guys to be able to do the drawings they want and the the cartoons they want because that's part of our culture. And the idea of going to the street was really to have everybody in the street and not to make the mix between those people who were extreme Muslims. No, they were killers, they were terrorists, but they didn't want the French people, the rest of the world, to see it as the Muslim did this. So that's why everybody was in the street. And Paris was quite amazing how you could see people from every ethnic minority. By going down in the street, we really wanted to show that it was for, you know, marching for freedom of speech, from freedom of expression, Everybody should go in the street and demonstrate, or actually march, not demonstrate, and no this... matter what ethnicity you're from. But they didn't want it to be linked, that terrorist attack, to the fact that those guys were extremist Muslim. They were okay. just extremists. So this was a demonstration against extremism. I don't think it was against, it was for, for freedom, freedom of speech. Not to be intimidated and terrorized by criminals. And not pointing at you know, a minority, which indeed in France we do have a large uh, minority of Muslims. Okay, so France really goes to the street to celebrate and defend the freedom to express yourself. Absolutely, yeah. And the freedom of journalism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the immigration issue, because that is related. This is something that I think it's more than a struggle in France. I think all of Europe is paying attention here. I think that the entire Occidental world have got to deal with that. I mean, in the States, you've got to deal with that as well. I mean, Mexico mm -hmm. is not far, and, uh, and all the uh, South American and Central American countries sending people in. I think we all have to face that kind of situation where we are the, the one owning the, uh, the goods and uh, having the good life, and, uh, and the other ones on the other side don't have it and want to step in it. So, so what, is, what is the future then? Is Europe just destined to become not what we think of as Europe, but a new Europe that is but, Islamic? You've got to put things in perspective first. I mean, it's not a new thing. I mean, immigration in France has been has been on for, for decades and decades and decades. We had waves of uh, Spanish people during the uh, the civil war in Spain. We had waves of Polish people when the uh, when the uh, mining coaling industry developed in the uh, in the north of France. Uh, Italian people before the Second World War as well, and so on. So it's not a new thing. It's part of the of the culture. I mean, you look at the French team of uh, soccer, and uh, there's not a French name on it. I mean, they're <laughs> all they're right. all coming from different origins, all over Europe and all over Africa because we are of the former colonies. The immigration in Europe is linked with where your country was colonizing different countries. That is true in so many cases. When we look at Portugal, we see the remnants of Portugal's Absolutely, empire. Absolutely, yeah. When we look at England, we see the remnants of the British Empire. And when we look at France, we have a lot of North Africa. Mm -hmm. And Exactly, yeah. and the idea of the bleu, blanc, rouge, which is the French flag, blue, white, and red. Recently, they've talked about blanc, beurre, noir, black, white for white people, mm -hmm. black, black people in France, and then the beurre is uh, slang for the North African origin people who live in France. And, you know, the flag, French flag is not bleu, blanc, rouge anymore. It's all of those diverse people we have. The French flag can stand for the fact that France is an... Di diversity. Uh, diversity. Mm -hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the challenges in France and in Europe in general, and in this global age when uh, so many nations are struggling with how do we assimilate our minorities? How do we deal with the fact that we're not all exactly the same as we may have been centuries ago? Or maybe we're just not understanding history, and the reality is we've always been struggling with assimilating different groups that come and go, different religions, different ethnicities. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, the history thing, because when you look at this story, you realize that uh, I mean, civilization have never stayed still for very long. They always have influences and people entering, immigrating from different countries. And evolvements of all those things make that the wealth of our civilization. The United States are what they are thanks to the melting pot. If you got rid of everybody who was different in America and all of a sudden you think that's utopia, you're going to have a country with no vitality, a country that does not look into the future Absol and, and a country yeah. that's going to yeah, be yeah, left yeah. behind. We've got the same thing, same, same thing in France. In the uh, 1960s, we wanted a lot of people to come in because we needed to build the country, build the new buildings all around the place. That was the very, very uh, wealthy period. 
and uh, we needed those people from North Africa, Now, from former colonies. I understand that France has the largest Muslim population yes. in Europe, and in a lot of ways, it's the most assimilated and uh, integrated or not. Uh, it, you do have a large Muslim population. It's very tricky because in France, unlike in the U.S., uh, we can't really officially ask someone what religion they are and what ethnicity they are. Mm -hmm. So this has an amazing, it's, it's great in one way, but it's a double-edged sword. Because people may feel like, well, we're integrated because we don't have a label put on us. We are whatever we want to be in France. However, the other side of the issue is that people like the Front National in France, the far-right party, they can take any small events, any petty crime that happens in small towns, and always say it's because of the people. So it, it's a double-edged sword. So I don't know if I would say France is a country where it's easy to assimilate. Mm -hmm. It's a mixture. It's a, I mean, like anywhere else, nothing is black or white. Some of the people are completely assimilated and, and are part mm -hmm. of the of the civilization, part of the culture, and uh, and some of them, some places, there are some ghettos and some difficulties and more difficulties of uh, finding jobs and having a future and things like that. So that's it's not an easy one, that's for sure. A lot of people, when they look from a distance at Europe, they they really are worried that in the future Europe will become overrun and one big Islamic caliphate. I mean, it sounds extreme, but people are worried about that. You live in the most Muslim country in Western Europe, and it is a substantial minority. But do you fear that there's just a demographic trend where 100 years from now, France will be Muslim? It's, it's, difficult, to, I mean, it's difficult to say because, you, I mean, we, we, we don't do that kind of studies or things like that. But uh, overall, I'm not, I'm not afraid by that. I mean, it's, again, it's... Uh, it's uh, life. It's, it's how a country evolves and... Yeah, the world population, which is moving around and which is creating new things and new situations and that we have adapted to all our, all our history. And, uh, I mean, that's one key is just adaptation. You can't it. control the balls that are coming at you. You've got to adapt to them and then, and then hit them. I think a lot of Europe is looking at France right now. France is a leader in Europe. It, it may not have the economic power of, of Germany, but France certainly has the culture, and it has the, the ability to connect North and South Europe, mm -hmm. and it has a colonial mm -hmm. heritage. And unfortunately, it may be sad that what happened with the Charlie Hebdo might be the thing that's, you know, the, the tip, the thing that made it uh, tip go over, yeah. tip over. We now have to do something because we can't just stay in that situation and we have to go show a good example. And I think the idea behind the Je suis Charlie, so I am Charlie, that was not just for that minority of people who originally bought the, the magazine, but it became from Je suis Charlie, Je suis Juif, I am Jewish, Je suis Flic because policemen were killed, and Je suis Athée, I'm atheist. It went just from just being people standing up for humanity and for simple rights. Simple rights and diversity and living together. At the same time. And living together at the same time. Patrick Vidal, Virginie Moray, thank you so much for giving us a little insider's look at what's going on in France. And I think uh, America has similar challenges as to countries all over this world, and we need to learn from each other. Absolutely. Yes. Merci bien. Thank you, Rick. Merci. Graham Robb tells us about some of the characters that provide a human framework for understanding Paris up next on Travel with Rick Steves. And in a little bit, we'll check in with listeners like you at 877-333-RICK or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll hear their stories of remarkable travel adventures, the kind that just might inspire you to get acquainted with Paris or anywhere else you've dreamed of traveling. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
When you get to know France as intimately as Graham Robb has, you uncover some surprising stories about the famous Parisians you may have encountered in a history text. Graham Robb spent years bicycling around France to get to know the country up close and personal. Lately, he's uncovered mysteries and tales of the people you might find celebrated in the great monuments of Paris or whose bones might rest in the catacombs beneath your feet. When his book, Parisians, was first released, a reviewer at the New York Times raved that he had accomplished the feat of reintroducing France to itself. Graham Robb joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to introduce us to some of Paris's most notable characters from the French Revolution till today. Graham, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. Now, you wrote a book about Paris, and, and rather than a chronology, you're kind of telling the story of Paris with a series of uh, stories about people, not presidents and great generals, but adulterers, poets, spies, prostitutes, revolutionaries. Why do we learn a lot about Paris by looking at these kind of characters? Because the, like any city, Paris is the people who live in it. And of course, you can write a history of the infrastructure that makes up the city, its buildings and street lighting and drains and the metro and so on. Hmm. But I thought this was a good way of writing a kind of abbreviated history that would give you a sense of what it was to live in Paris in a particular place and at a particular time. And really, it was kind of homage to, to Paris to show that every great city generates countless stories. And you could just peer through one window in one building in different centuries and construct a a whole history in miniature of the city. Tell us the story of one quirky Parisian that'll give us a a better appreciation of the city's true personality. Well, the person that I thought the most revealing in some ways was the man who has been almost completely forgotten, who saved the entire left bank of Paris from sinking into the abyss. He was a man who went down into the old quarries that had been dug out of the hill on the left bank of Paris since before the Romans, and which had been propped up by the slender pillars of limestone that had been left there. And successive generations would dig down below those pillars until the whole thing was a honeycomb. And there had been a few subsidences in the the streets, but no one had actually gone and explored this underworld. And he went down and realized that half of Paris was on the point of collapsing. And he was the man who was considered slightly mad, who constructed a kind of inverted cathedral under the left bank of Paris and made this this beautiful arched monument. It's far more beautiful than it needed to be to support the left bank and really became the man who saved Paris. The West Bank of Paris is honeycombed with quarries, and this guy recognized that it was actually in danger, so he built an arch to support it, to save the city? Yes, he wrote a report, and he was appointed by the king, and given all the money and and labor that he needed, and built a masterpiece. He's a hero. Underground. He's a hero with a sense of style. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, see, now that's great. Does that have something to do with Plaster of Paris? We hear about Plaster of Paris. Yes, there were also Plaster of Paris mines in the north, and there was also a subsidence problem in the north. But yes, a lot of it was for that. I used to stay in a hotel on Place Blanche, and I understand it means the white place, and or the white square, and it was just called that oh, because yes. Plaster of Paris was quarried there and always sloppily loaded under trucks, and the square was always white. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I'm just fascinated by underground Paris because, of course, a lot of us go to the... Um, the catacombs, and they unearthed all the cemeteries because it was considered uh, not hygienic uh, and uh, back in, I think, the 19th, early 19th century. And, uh, and uh, they just happened to have pre-quarries dug underneath the streets, so there's millions of skeletons lined up on those quarries. So that was handy if you're, if you're uh, vacating cemeteries. Yes, and it was the same man who had the idea of constructing the, the catacombs in oh, that okay. way using human bones. Ah, because they're beautifully artistically done also. It's one of the most fascinating hikes you can take, is, especially on a hot day, is in the cool catacombs under the city, marveling at, you know, literally thousands and thousands of skulls beautifully stacked, if you're into that. <laughs> yes, and actually his bones are in there too now. Because oh, is that right? Because the cemetery he was buried in was oh. later removed to the catacombs. So he's still helping to keep Paris up. Author and historian Graham Robb is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His bestseller, Parisians, an Adventure History of Paris, is published by Norton. Graham also published biographies of 19th century French literary giants, 
people like Balzac and Victor Hugo. His groundbreaking work, The Discovery of France, earned him the prestigious Order of Arts and Letters from the government of France. You can hear our interview with Graham about that book in the Travel with Rick Steves radio archives. Search the radio section at ricksteves.com for program number 371. That was from July of 2014. Graham, I was just watching Les Miserables, and I felt that we owe, free people everywhere, owe a debt of gratitude, really, to the uh, early freedom fighters in Paris that are celebrated in Les Miserables. And you write that the historic image of, of Parisians are disturbers of the peace in a great way. Do you get a sense when you when you think of the people of Paris that freedom came from Paris in a certain way? <laughs> I suppose it, the idea of political freedom in France, I suppose you could say, came from Paris as the seat of government and the seat of revolution. And there is a pattern that suggests that revolutions in France have to begin in Paris. Now, there were uprisings in other parts of France, but national revolutions, of which there are many, it's not just the French Revolution, did tend to spread from Paris to the provinces. And the old regime was so, so solid, and for people to actually break that up, to me, that was quite heroic, and it, it didn't happen easy, and uh, a lot of countries don't have it today. But there were Parisians that helped start that for Western civilization. Yes, and they, in a sense, sold it to other countries because mm-hmm. it was very, like a lot of political events in France, it was very highly intellectualized from the very beginning. Voltaire and Rousseau, and, you know, they had theorists of revolution who were able to explain the chaos or try to explain the chaos that was going on. And I suppose what they also created was a state of more or less permanent revolution, because all Mm -hmm. through the 19th century, at almost regular intervals after the French Revolution, there were many other national revolutions and coups d'etat that aren't talked about as much and Mm. certainly aren't always celebrated in the same way. Wow, so the, the sort of the tyranny of the old regime was like a little disease that kept coming back and it wasn't finally squashed and it had to be hit again and again by those revolutions that were sort of starting from the streets of Paris where they set up the barricades and made history. Graham Robb is the author of Parisians, an adventure history of Paris. After the book was translated into French, the mayor of Paris awarded Graham the Grand Medal of the City of Paris. You'll find web links to Graham's works about France and its people in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. Look in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Just very quickly, Graham, I'm going to list people who we associate with Paris, and if you can just quickly tell me as a traveler what impact they had on Paris. Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette uh, had her impact on Paris was largely imaginary because people didn't really know her, but she did become a hated figure. She was one of the people that represented the Ancien Régime. And of course, she wasn't French. She was a foreigner. So I think that added That's to That's right. Her. She was married into the family, but happened to be there at the wrong time and lost her head. How about Baron Haussmann? Baron Haussmann probably had a greater effect on Paris than anyone's ever had on any city, unless you count bombing raids. Mm. He completely transformed Paris in the mid-19th century into a kind of tourist destination. It's one of the earliest examples of a city in Europe turning its center into a kind of museum piece so Mm. that people who included some of Baron Haussmann's rich friends were forced to move further out, out of the center of Paris. So the uniform uh, skyline, the beautiful facades, the grand boulevards, we can thank Baron Haussmann from the middle of the 1800s. Yes, a lot of that is his work. It was very carefully planned and then uh, carefully carried out over less than 20 years. Okay, Charles de Gaulle. His real importance is obvious in the war and then later as president of France. But he also plays a very symbolic role. And you think of Charles de Gaulle returning at the Libération at the end of the Second World War marching down the Champs-Élysées and attending a ceremony at Notre-Dame de Paris. And he really had the knack of incarnating uh, an almost mythical figure and presenting himself Ah. as a kind of incarnation of French history, all centered in Paris. I love that. And when you mention that, I think my favorite statue in Paris might be the the statue of Charles de Gaulle himself striding down the Champs-Élysées on that great day when, when the war was over. Yes. Graham, let's finish just with one piece of advice from you for any of us visiting Paris to best appreciate that great city. The most important thing to do in Paris is to walk across it 
and it's actually, central Paris is a very small place. You can easily walk across it twice, from west to east and north to south, in a single day. And that way you'll discover a huge amount about Paris, even more than you will if you tour the sites on a, an open deck bus. I love that advice, and it's interesting because I've been going there for 30 years, and my sister was visiting uh, recently, and I decided we're not going to go sightseeing, we're just going to take a walk straight across through neighborhoods I'd never been. And it was one of the most rewarding half days I've had in Paris, and it was places that were not famous, it was just Paris. Graham Robb, author of Parisians and Adventure History of Paris, merci beaucoup for a little help on understanding what I consider the capital of Europe. You're very welcome, Rick, it's my pleasure. With more than 15 million visitors a year, Paris is inspiring new stories all the time. Maybe one of them is yours. Let's check in with our listeners now at 877-333-7425. Tell us about your own adventures in Paris or anywhere else interesting you've been traveling lately. Diane's on the phone in Warren, Ohio. Hi, Diane. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. We're talking about France. Do you have any ideas about France or Paris? Well, I think uh, one of the best things um, I ever did when I went to Paris was I'd do the touristy thing in the morning, Mm -hmm. and then in the afternoon, I would sit down at one of the cafes. I would just pick a cafe along the way back to the hotel, and I would just sit there, and they would give you a glass of wine, and sometimes I'd have, you know, pickled olives or nuts or whatever, and I would just sit for an hour or two and just watch the people. It, it was fabulous. I think that is one of the best tips you could possibly give about enjoying Paris. It's, mm. it's such a Parisian thing to do, isn't it? Oh, it is. It, it's wonderful. I wish we could do that in America. <laughs> I miss that aspect of France when I come back to the United States. I mean, we have our cafes and so on, but right. th- there's something about the ambience of a Parisian cafe. Yes, yes. And you can go every different time of day. You've got a lot of neighborhood cafes where you get the sort of the character of each neighborhood. And Paris really is a collection of neighborhoods, and you pick that up when you enjoy the cafes. You do. You can tell and you can see the difference. And if you know where to look, there's all sorts of little insights into the community you've got right there. Of course, you have to have a little bit of uh, cafe etiquette. You need to know what to order and, and how to order it. But True. I, I find people there kind of give a tourist a, with the right attitude, a little, cut them a little slack and, and help they them out. They do. Yeah, they're, they're very nice. And when you're, when you're sightseeing in Paris, it can be a little overwhelming to absorb all the things that you've just seen and experienced oh, and right. to be able to sit down in a cafe and, and make that part of your discipline of enjoying your vacation in Paris is to absorb it with the locals enjoying a break in a cafe. Yes, that's the time of day then, like you said, I would sit down and I would journal what right. I did during the day and remember what I saw because I knew I would forget if I didn't do it. Do you sit indoors, at the bar, or outdoors? Outdoors, definitely. Okay, and what's a favorite cafe experience? That you oh, um, probably it was one afternoon right when I came from Versailles. I had spent the whole day at Versailles, and mm-hmm. I finally had to sit down. And it was probably about 4 or 5 o'clock. And a lot of the moms came along with their prams and their babies. And some of them would stop and sit and, you know, talk with each other or just stop in front of the cafe and talk to one another. That that was so cute and so charming. I love that. And a lot of cafes have wonderful pastries and elegant macaroons. Did you ever try the macaroons in some of the cafes? That is one thing I did not try when mm. I was there. I'm going to the Champs-Élysées. There's a famous cafe right there that will turn you into a macaroon uh, fan. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I go back. All right, Diane. I'll put thanks, it on my list. <laughs> thanks for your call. I'll see you at a uh, cafe in Paris. Yes, thanks, Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Judith from Duxbury, Massachusetts, emails us, and she writes, My husband and I are headed to Paris for a week. We'd like to take a day trip and have narrowed down our choices to Giverney or Versailles. Uh, we're both interested in art and try to avoid crowds as much as possible. What are your thoughts? Well... I would say, of course, Versailles is the home of the greatest palace in Europe. It's uh, about an hour outside of Paris. And Giverney, also about an hour outside of Paris, is the well, it's where Monet had his garden and his uh, studio and ended his, uh, spent his last years. And uh, fans of Impressionist paintings, uh, for them it's like a pilgrimage to go to Giverney. Versailles is, I think, arguably Europe's single grandest palace. And... Uh, If you're trying to avoid crowds, it's a lousy place to go because it is very crowded, but it's the ultimate palace in Europe. Giverny, on the other hand, is relaxing, and it's thrilling to Monet fans, but I would say its charms are pretty subtle for people who aren't into Impressionism. If I had just one day to spend outside of Paris, I think I'd choose Versailles, 
but Judith is saying she's interested in art and wants to avoid crowds. In that case, probably Giverney, G-I-V-E-R-N-Y, is for you. Jeannie's on the phone in Weston, Florida. Jeannie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just wanted to mention to you that when my husband and I travel, um, we just kind of get ourselves into the city, and then we just kind of walk around and try to figure out what's going on just by looking at the pace of the people. And we do a lot of our travels on foot once we land in a a major city. Um, We'll use public transportation. Uh, My husband, of course, likes to take cabs out to dinner, but we'll use uh, some of the local transportation just to get around. And I uh, comment on Paris when we were in Paris, uh, what an easy city it is to walk around. The best thing to do is to get a a city map, and just kind of study it and look at it and find out where all the sites are. And before you know it, you're walking around, and as you turn a corner, there's one of the museums you wanted to visit or there's a site that you had heard about or a store or a shop. It was wonderful. One evening while we were walking, it was kind of drizzly. We were anxious to, to find a cab. We couldn't find a cab, but we just enjoyed the walk. And as we were walking, we crossed over, and there we were in front of Notre Dame, and the local people were dancing, and it was just a real Paris moment. It was like the end of summer for a lot of the college students, Mm -hmm. so they were all kind of gathering, just enjoying their bread and their wine. It was just so wonderful to see people out and just really enjoying the sights and enjoying the city. Speaking of that kind of Paris moment and that wonderful outdoor ambiance, did you find uh, just beyond the Notre Dame and the Ile de la Cité is a park with modern art in it along the riverbank? Did you find that? Yes. And you've got those yes. little semicircular kind of theaters going out from the river where people would dance in the evenings. And just to wander through there, you kind of go, whoa, this is the non-touristy side of Paris that really is high quality of good life. Oh, it certainly is. Jeannie, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Maybe I'll see you wandering through Paris sometime. Happy travels. Oh, boy, wouldn't that be great? Bye-bye now. Bye now. Krista in Charlotte, North Carolina, sends this suggestion for staying in Paris. If you're going to rent an apartment, make sure it's in the area around Rue Montorgueil. You can live like a Parisian by shopping daily on this market street. There's lots of rentals in the area. Krista is right on with this suggestion. I love to find the market streets in Paris. Of course, I've long been a fan of Rue Claire, and Rue Montorgueil is just a big version of Rue Claire. It's less touristy, less American, and every day you can just feel like you're a local Parisian stepping out and dropping by the, the patisserie for your favorite pastries and getting to know the people at the cafe and finding your own little mom-and-pop uh, restaurants. There's plenty of that intimate neighborhood sort of action on the Rue Montorgueil Market. That's uh, spelled M-O-N-T-O-R-G-U-E-I-L. Paris, je m'ennuie de toi, mon vieux. On se retrouvera tous les deux. More listener travel tales are just ahead at 877-333-RICK or by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for inviting us to be your travel partner today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's hear more of your travel adventures right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Tell us the highlights of where you've been lately and how you made yourself feel right at home, so far from your usual surroundings. We're at 877-333-7425. Karen's calling from Santa Rosa in California. Hi, Karen. Hello, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. What sort of travels have been on your mind lately? Well, I was just thinking about a trip we did a couple years ago and drove through Switzerland, Hmm. and we had a wonderful time. That's the most expensive road system in the world, and it's worth every penny, I think. Absolutely. Uh, we ended up trying to figure out how to get from uh, Fusen to see the Neuschwanstein Castle and then get to Verona in Lake Como. And it seemed like the best way to get there quickest was to drive. So we just did a road trip one day from Statum Riuda, per your recommendation, mm-hmm. and ended up in Lake Como for a beautiful sunset. So for people who don't uh, know exactly the map, we're talking about uh, the south end of Germany, really where Germany and Austria come together. The highest mountain in Germany is the Zugspitze, about 10,000 feet high. And nearby is the famous Mad King Ludwig's castle, uh, Neuschwanstein. 
And just over the border is a place called Reuter in the Tyrol, in Austria. And most of the tourists stay in Fussen to visit Neuschwanstein. But I really like to stay across the border in a humbler town, uh, less of a resort, called Reuter, R-E-U-T-T-E. And from there, you can side trip back across. You can actually walk over the mountain, and we cross the German border on a trail up in the mountains, and we then walk down to find that breathtaking Neuschwanstein Castle. Everybody looks at that, and they goes, whoa, Walt Disney must have been inspired by that castle to build his castle in Disneyland. And then you went from Reuta and Fusen and the castle, really kitty corner across, well, cutting across Switzerland to get to the lakes of Italy. And there's all these beautiful lakes in the north of Italy, and my favorite is Lake Como, Lago di Como and you stayed at my favorite town on that lake, Varena. Tell us more about the trip. We wanted to stop in St. Moritz because my husband and I had both been ski bums when we were younger. So we drove through Switzerland, through the passes, ended up in St. Moritz, parked the car, and then found a wonderful restaurant overlooking the lake. We still distinctly remember the perfect salmon that we had. Mm. And then we walked to the tram and this was early September, so took the tram up the mountain and then walked down. And it was just, it was a gorgeous day, not a cloud in the sky. Mm. We saw cows with bells. We saw, actually saw, I think, the bunkers from World War II and then walked down through the town. And it was just a, it was a perfect day in Switzerland. Did you sleep in Switzerland or was this a one-day drive from... This is just a one-day drive. Wow. We figured the actual drive was maybe four and a half hours of driving, uh-huh. so we just made it into a eight-hour day. Oh, that's a great idea. And um, when you were in uh, San Moritz, that's the little corner of Switzerland where they speak Romance. Technically, uh, or officially, Switzerland is a four-language country. German is most, and then French is second, and about 10% of the country speaks Italian, and then one or two percent speak Romance, and that's a ancient language directly related to uh, Roman and, and Latin, and uh, that's a, a region called the Engadine, and that's where you were in San Moritz, and what a great idea to take a sunny day, park the car, ride the tram up, and then hike down. The other funny thing about, we didn't really think about what currency to use in Switzerland, so we had our euros with us, mm-hmm. and as we sat down for lunch, we realized, okay, we not euros, it's Swiss francs, I wonder what the exchange rate was. So when we ate lunch, we had No idea whether this is going to be a really expensive lunch or a cheap lunch. We just put it on our credit card. And then when we got home, we realized we'd just spent $150 for lunch. Yeah. But it was (laughs) spectacular. I'm afraid if you're using euros (laughs) or francs, it's going to be expensive in Switzerland. If you're ever going to picnic anywhere and save some serious money, you would picnic in Switzerland. They've got remarkably uh, competitively priced uh, groceries in the big grocery stores. And it's just routine for people to picnic for lunch because it's just so so expensive. But then you got into Italy and Verena on Lake Como. How did you like Verena? We absolutely loved it. Mm. Um, we stayed at the old monastery there. Oh, yeah. And both nights were up in this top level overlooking the lake. And now, there's the two monasteries that I can think of, Karen. There's one where you ride a, a goofy little elevator up to yep, a high... Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so it's like standing in a, in a London phone booth going on a, on a steep incline going up the mountain. Absolutely. And then you get up there, and that's a great perch and an old monastery that now rents out rooms. I'm glad you stayed there. That's just a beautiful spot. That is just, to cut what you did from Bavaria across Switzerland to Lake Como is one of the most beautiful swaths of Europe that I can imagine. Absolutely. Going over the border from Switzerland to Italy... You knew the moment you crossed into Italy just because of the difference in roads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a huge visual difference uh, just in the roads and the buildings and, and everything. By the way, when you drove across Switzerland, a tourist needs to have a sticker on their car. I mentioned the road system was the most expensive in Europe. It was, it's not the most expensive to use. It was the most expensive to build. The Swiss spent a lot of money building their great road system, and we have to help pay for it by getting a decal when we drive our car in. Do you remember, did your car have a decal, or did you have to buy it at the border? I don't think we did, but we stayed on the back roads and okay. did not get any on any of their freeway systems. There you go. So you saved, so we, I, I, we I forget if it's... we purposely stayed yeah. off the roads so we didn't have to deal with a sticker. So, so we just did the two-lane roads, the if, frontage roads along the freeway, and then as you go to St. Moritz, you're on two-lane roads anyway. So to use their, their interstate system, their free, freeway system, you need to buy that decal. So you saved a little money, and you probably got a little more scenery because you're on the small Absolutely. roads. All right, Karen, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy Bye. travels. Bye. And Fred's calling in from Lakewood in Colorado. Hi, Fred. Hello, Rick. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for your call. Where have you been traveling lately? 
Well, we just returned from three weeks in Europe, and uh, we spent a few days in Paris. We rented an apartment two blocks from the Louvre and uh, learned to use the metro and got all over town. So you stayed in an apartment. How did you find that, and was that a good experience? We found it online. It was a very good experience, just wonderful. It was close to a little grocery store and a, a bakery and little restaurants. Once you got settled and, in, uh, you probably felt like this is your neighborhood. Oh, we loved it. We had a similar room in Krakow, and it turned out that there was a, a bar in this uh, mm. courtyard beneath us. Yeah. But fortunately, when we shut the window and turned on the air conditioning, we didn't hear them. That's amazing. I want to talk more about Krakow in a minute, Fred, but you were in Paris. Okay. Did you figure the apartment was cheaper than a hotel? Oh, definitely. I think we spent... Um, our son from Saudi Arabia met us in Paris. So the three of us had this uh, one-bedroom apartment. He slept in the, the living room. Uh-huh. And I think it was about uh, $90 a night. $90 a night for three of you, and you had a little kitchen there, too. Exactly. Oh, that's cheaper and, uh, than a youth the, hostel, really. The clothes washer, so we could wash our clothes, and we had this beautiful, quiet little courtyard our windows looked out on. Yeah. Uh, all over Europe, people are renting apartments and so on, and, and especially in a place like Paris, you're going to stay there for a week, and, and you want to be settled, and, and hotels are quite expensive, and it's nice to be able to cook, uh, have your breakfast or your lunch right there in your place. What a beautiful idea. You used Airbnb but, then? That's the one that would be my favorite. Right. That's what. That's sort of the dominant one, the way I understand it. Hey, Fred, tell me about your time in Poland, because I was just there, and I just had a, a wonderful time in Poland. Oh, well, we took a uh, Viking river cruise from Paris to uh, Prague. Uh-huh. So we took a night train from Prague to Krakow. Do you remember that big modern uh, mall right at the train station now? Oh, yes. In fact, I think that was the, the nicest public transportation facility that I saw in Europe. So brand new train station, and you step out and you feel like you're in a giant American mall. And if you haven't been to Poland for a while, it's just an amazing, striking change. But Krakow is the historic capital of Poland, and there's so much to see and do in Poland, and especially after you've been in Western Europe, to be able to just go out and have a drink or go to a nice restaurant and not worry about the cost. You know, it's just you cannot spend a lot of money. You can sit on the main square and have a fancy drink, and it, it feels like it was a cheap experience. Well, we did that. We didn't have fancy drinks, but just beer and wine, and it was very affordable, about the same price as we pay here at home. Yeah, what, were, what was your sightseeing highlight in Krakow? Well, we just walked all around uh, the Old Town section. We enjoyed the cloth square. There was a Sepalia festival going on, and Sepalia is the uh, company that the communist government founded to help promote uh, handicraft manufacturers. Oh, my goodness. You would have it was their 65th anniversary. So they had, uh, oh, I would say 200 craft booths set up, hmm. musicians, foods. On that and main square. Next, yes, and that's in addition to the probably 100 sellers that are in the cloth hall. So for, for our listeners, this uh, Krakow has this main market square, which is just must be the biggest market square in Europe. And in its day, it was one of the main trading centers, a crossroads in the Middle Ages. And in the center is a big formal market building called the Cloth Hall. You can go upstairs for a nice um, uh, national gallery, beautiful paintings, uh, and also a restaurant up there with a good view over the square. But downstairs is all of your, you know, traditional crafts and so on. But you hit the town during a big crafts festival where that whole market square would be filled with artisans and craftspeople. And what I was struck by was they were doing some renovations and they found the 500-year-old uh, remnants of the market square underneath, about 12 feet underneath the square. And today that's a museum called Underground Krakow. And you just descend right there in the square. And then they've got a whole street recreated where you see the artifacts and the handicrafts that they made 500 years ago in little well-lit glass cases. And to walk mm. down that and to think that people were selling their uh, buckles and their shoes and their knives and their hinges and all of that sort of stuff... Uh, 500 years ago, and then to go upstairs uh, and to go through the market today, it's just wonderful experience there in the historic capital of Poland, Krakow. Fortunately for us, we got bumped off of our flight. Lufthansa was oversold, and uh, we were able to run a car in that extra day and drive down to Zakopane. Now, what did you think about that? Because Zakopane was famous in communist times as the place where all the workers would go for their mountain vacation. It was, back in the old days, everybody went on vacation to the same place. They all had the same cameras. Everybody went to, to Zakopane in the mountains of Poland, not because it was great, but it was because it's the only place they could go in their country. And today it remains a, a popular mountain resort. How was it? Well, you're exactly right. 
we, of course, lived near Vail, and uh, it was much like Vail, except this was the authentic thing. How and, so? Uh, we just, well, the uh, the buildings are all the chalet style that is the Polish style. Hmm. So it didn't feel like it, cheap 1950s communist architecture? Oh, no, not at all. It was uh, like homes that have been there for 200 years. Wow. Whereas in, in Vail, they... They started that in 1962 and <laughs> tried to make it look like an old Bavarian village, ah, which it's not. I get you. That's the kind of the authentic, the authentic right. Alpine resort in Poland, Zakopane. Mm-hmm. From there, what would you do? Would you would you settle in for a few days and hike, or what? There's a lot of hiking that goes on there. Uh, there's also uh, this is a ski area where Pope John Paul used to ski. Speaking about Pope uh, John Paul, of course, now he's Saint John Paul II. And all over Krakow and all over Poland, you'll find uh, chapels dedicated to the hometown boy that went to Rome as the Pope. There's a new John Paul sanctuary just outside of Krakow that I visited a couple weeks ago. And it's mm-hmm. a, an amazing, sparkling new church. And uh, he is so revered in Poland. You find the churches are more alive anyways in Poland than other places in Europe. And today you'll find uh, statues and paintings and mosaics and shrines and chapels dedicated to St. John Paul II. I saw street signs that were pointing to this or that named after Pope John Paul II. And Pope was uh, replaced with the uh, Polish word for saint. Everything has been upgraded now as, as the Polish Pope has become a saint. Well, I think we may have seen that cathedral. We didn't notice a uh, very modern cathedral yeah. as we're driving to Krakow, so that may have been it. That was probably we'll it. Check that out next time. All right. Hey, Fred, thanks for your call. All right. Thank you. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is you. We're checking in with listener travel reports at 877-333-7425. You'll also find an online message board for sharing your thoughts and comments about what you hear on the show or for telling us what you've experienced lately in your travels. Look for the listener feedback form. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And Carol is on the line in Bel Air, Florida. Carol, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Fine, thank you. What's your travel dreams lately, or where have you been? We did Prague, Luxembourg City, Germany, and Paris in the spring, and we sort of combine going back to places we've been with new places, and mm-hmm. you always discover something something new about the area. So you did Prague, Luxembourg City, Germany, and Paris, you said? Mm-hmm. Now, I've been, uh, we've been doing this radio show for almost 10 years, and I don't think I've ever said the word Luxembourg City. Uh, that's, of course, the capital of a little country called Luxembourg, and Luxembourg was almost created to be uh, non-aligned and uh, in a day when the balance of power was really careful. It was so strategically placed that they said, okay, it's going to be independent, and nobody can have Luxembourg on its side. What was your take on Luxembourg City? I loved it. It was very different because of the cave-like the casemates? Uh, that the, the city is built on, mm-hmm. where they had stored things during wartime and everything. We were there on a market day, and market days are always wonderful to see the different foods and mm. the flowers and everything. We talked with the people. They're very proud you know, of their heritage, and uh, I didn't really know a great deal about Luxembourg. We've always traveled mainly in Germany or France, uh, so it was it was different. We went to the American Cemetery. That's always very moving. But the city was it was beautiful. It was different. It looks very different because of the way it's built. Is that because and, of its? Um, it was heavily fortified in the old days. Yes, you're talking about yes. those uh, um, military bunkers or whatever. Those I think yes. are called the casemates. Right. You do get a sense that back in the 19th century or the 18th century, it was heavily fortified. Um, in a strategic kind of corner in Europe. Right. If you look at photographs, you sort of think they're like cliffs, but it's I've never seen a city like it before. It's very unique. You know, it's interesting, but, Carol, when we think about that, because today you think of all the skyscrapers and the freeways that are being built and all the concrete that's being poured. Two or 300 years ago, Europe was just pouring as much energy into fortifying itself. And mm-hmm. all over Europe, you have cities like Luxembourg City that, that almost are shaped by their early modern fortifications. And these are heavy fortifications, fat, squat fortifications, because they were built after the um, development of artillery and, and cannon fire and so on. So they couldn't be tall castles like we think of in the Middle Ages, but squat, right. thick 
cannonball-proof castles, and, and in a lot of cases, they've left the fortifications there, or in more forti- cases, they've torn down the fortifications. We were just talking about Krakow. Krakow has a wonderful circular park around it with uh, the remnants of its old star fortification that would go all around the city. I was just in Copenhagen. It's got a whole series of lakes and parks that circle the city that used to be the medieval fortifications. Of course, when you go to Vienna, you see the circular ring road. Well, it was circular because that was the circular wall they tore down. Uh, But you have all these remnants of fortifications in your travels, don't you? Yes, you do. You can really see the history. Yeah. So you went to Prague. How was that? Love Prague. It's, It's a beautiful city. We had gone online because we knew we wanted to see a concert, to hear a concert, and we went to St. Nicholas, which was a part of the city we hadn't been to before, and that was, it was beautiful. Now, is that the St. Nicholas across the bridge under the castle, or the St. Nicholas by the main square? So there's two St. Nicholas churches. No, I actually thought I was making the reservations for the one near the clock. Yeah. (laughs) It was across the bridge. And that was really nice, because we discovered a whole section of the city we had never seen before, and the concert was wonderful. You know what I really like, Carol, about doing a concert in Prague? First of all, it's about a third the cost of uh, Vienna. And what I like to do is go into the box office because, to me, I like to choose the venue in sort of uh, sensitive to the kind of music I'm going to see. If I'm going to hear a Baroque concert, it's nice to be in a Baroque uh, place or a beautiful Baroque sort right. of a space. And in, in Prague, you've got all of these wonderful venues, and at the box office... They have photographs of each of them, so you can see what's on today, what's the venue like, what's being performed, and it's all very affordable and accessible. It's a, just a beautiful thing for the, the tourist who wants to enjoy some live classical music in, in gorgeous uh, settings. Yes, yes, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, my husband, who isn't really into classical music, said he got goosebumps. I mm. mean, it was really spectacular. Now that is an accomplishment when husbands that aren't into classical yeah. music get goosebumps sitting in a church listening to Vivaldi. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Carol, thanks for your call. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information and the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.